Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special podcast dedicated to the world's end, the third and final part of Edgar Wright and Simon Pegg's Three Flavours Cornetto Trilogy. Later on we'll be talking to Messrs Pegg, Wright and Nick Frost as they spill on the secrets of the film, but first we're going to natter on about it ourselves. But be warned, as you might expect from a spoiler podcast, we're going to be talking spoilers. Lots of spoilers. And we've held off on releasing this until after it's out in the States, so British listeners have had five weeks and therefore no excuse, then highly to your local multiplex immediately and then come back. But if you have, then let's begin. I'm joined today by Helen O'Hara. Hello. Ali Plum. Hiya. And Nick DeSemlian. Hello. How are we all? Very well, thank you. Excellent. I've had 12 uh, pints. So <laughs> I'm actually under the table, but I've got the mic. Four Empire journalists. Uh, um, so far, I'm seeing one water in a cup, one tea. Mint. I've got a bubble. Uh, which is a water filter thing filled with water and Nick you you actually don't have anything I've just had 12 pints okay <laughs> you just said that didn't you literally yeah. have just yeah. had 12 pints yeah. okay fair enough so let's, let's have a quick uh, chat about the world's end uh, first and foremost a fitting conclusion uh, to the three flavours Cornetto trilogy or the blood and ice cream trilogy if you if prefer, you prefer. that title mm. I don't prefer that I prefer <laughs> three flavours Cornetto that's because you're more art house I think I, I really enjoyed it I think it's um, it's a very 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 well constructed story very well told they've they really took some risks with this one you know they've got a, a, a sort of a leading man a protagonist who is not immediately sympathetic he's not as sympathetic as Sean was or even Nick Angel um, and I think that's a really good decision in the end because it, it forces you to kind of work at it a little bit and and also makes it a more interesting film than I think it otherwise would be. So, um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. There's so much more depth to this kind of comedy, to their kind of comedy, than the usual cookie-cutter stuff we get. No offence in particular to the heat, but that's what's currently <laughs> in my head. <laughs> Where you go, well, how long did this take to think up? But you watch The World's End, and whether you like it or love it, I'm giving you two options. Um, <laughs> you know there's lots to it. You know when you watch it again, they'll yeah. be, oh, they did that, that's genius. And then the third time, and the fourth time, and the fifth time. And that yeah. depth, that this is... treasure trove feeling is what's exciting about it. Yeah, this is a multiple viewing movie, definitely. Definitely. Um, I've seen it at the time of recording. I've seen it two and a half times because I saw the first 46 minutes whenever I was uh, writing the feature for Empire and uh, Edgar Wright showed the 46 minutes to me and I, and I enjoyed it then he cut off it cut off at the exact point uh, in the cross hands after they encounter and fight the blanks for the first time in the bathroom and then it just cut yeah. the black yeah in the bathroom and then it just cut the black and I was like no um, so it took me a while to see the rest the other 62 minutes and I was, I've seen, seen that twice and the second time around you see so much and there's a little reference for example the first time when, uh, when Martin Freeman's character Ollie is on the phone to his sister Sam for the first time when they're in the uh, the old familiar, and uh, and he goes, oh yeah, oh did he get lost in the ring road again? And it's just a little throwaway line. You just think it's a little, but then that it happens to her later on at the end of the film. She, she yeah. only comes back because she got lost in the ring road again. That these guys, their their scripts are just very tight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pre- precision form, just beautiful. There's mm. an insane level of foreshadowing in this. Definitely, when I yeah. saw it the second time, almost every line, and even that that prologue right at the beginning when you see their younger selves. Everything links back to something that happens later in the film. We had yeah. to bench him, and then, of course, they do have to inadvertently. Yeah, them getting para in the uh, cricket pavilion or whatever it is. Yeah. That's the, the, the yeah. paranoia. I mean, 
everything everything uh, down to the posters for the school disco that they go to the posters have figures with glowing eyes on them and that's actually a fairly common kind of nightclub-y looking poster mm. but obviously in this case not you know there, there's again a clear link to the aliens and so on it's oh, I just love all that I love all that detail that every time you go back and watch it you're seeing more stuff that you didn't even realize and it's the same with Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz I mean this is not this is not a new thing for them it's it's absolutely, no, absolutely yeah. been there since the beginning famously in Shaun the, uh, the, in the uh, speech where, where Ed and Shaun are in the pub and Ed basically lays out the entire film yeah. but in the form of we'll go to you know have a load of drinks uh, and the, the, the opening of this film The World's End as Nick said does effectively the same thing but there are so many little references when, when they get up the train station it's like we're following Gary King into oblivion or we're going to get annihilated and uh, yeah, that stuff's really more clever. obvious. <laughs> that stuff's more, obviously it's more obvious, but yeah. Did any of you guys catch the numbers? The which n- numbers? There are numbers uh, corresponding to each of the twelve pubs in the scene in the pub, which I didn't get at all. I didn't even get number twelve, which is the most obvious. Which the the pint at the world's end is on it's table on number twelve. It's on twelve, yeah. Ah. I didn't get any of that. Oh. Nick. So where where could we find some of the other numbers? Don't tell us all of them, but where are the other numbers? Oh, I don't know. I I spoke to Edgar about the soundtrack last week, and he gleefully describe some of the stuff we might not call and I frankly barely caught any of it <laughs> so this goes to show and I've seen it two and a half times as well but, but I think the nerdiest one is that uh, the brewery the made up brewery in the film is called Winshire which is the name of the fictional county in John Wyndham's The Midwich Cuckoos oh very good you almost got that I'm sure I almost got that yes, I didn't get it funny John Wyndham's having a bit of a moment by proxy at the moment because you know there's a little bit there's definitely Wyndham-esque stuff in here and Pacific Rim also has a bit of a Wyndham quality if you've seen that there's uh, it links to a book of his called The Crack and Wakes so uh, go read some more John Wyndham everybody he's good mm-hmm. or indeed just read some John Wyndham because I've never read John Wyndham you've probably come across it the Midwich Cuckoos Day of the Triffids yeah, yeah I've never read no, he's great I've read John Christopher but I've never read John Wyndham he's part yeah. of the sci-fi canon quickly to the Kindle store on this mythology thing I like this, these films unabashedly and this mythology thing that, that kind of floats my boat is because when you're watching something like Man of Steel or other super hero movies or things with their own individual back catalogue like Star Trek they're playing with previous in- incarnations of what they're doing sure. right previous takes on their thing this is them who are so confident so strong they're making their own mythology for each film aside from the Cornetto rapper at the end which was a touch of genius there isn't that much that directly connects it to the other films it is its own movie and it's strong enough in itself to have its own structure that you go, oh, that's clever, but not mm. because it's hat tipping a alien that didn't turn up in the previous. Yeah, movie. because I think whenever we first heard pubs, we first heard there's a there's a, a larger threat. We thought this could be a Shaun of the Dead retread, and absolutely isn't that. No, and a, a large large part less down to the uh, the choices they made with the characters as well. Other things, other links to the uh, to the other two films, by the way, the Fruit Machine in the King's Head. Mm-hmm. It's the same noise. Which is called Ooh Ah Dracula. Ooh Ah Dracula, there we go. Uh, it's the same fruit machine. In, and of course in the Sean fence class. jump. And of course the fence jump. I mean, they are there, but they're kind of grace notes rather than yeah. look what we're doing. And I'm looking at Star Trek Into Darkness here, another peg joint. Um, but yeah, where you go, not lifted wholesale, but lifted to a lesser or greater extent. Yeah. This is kind of a lot more subtle and knowing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, for example, that they didn't, they did the fence jump, but they didn't do... What's the problem? Yeah, what's the matter? Never taken the shortcut before? Or they, they didn't do uh, one anything from the shop? For example, it would have been a bit tricky to crowbar it into a 12 mm. pub pub crawl, but it's good they didn't go down the road. Wasn't that a last minute addition, the fence jump? They decided to do that, defense, reshot it. The fence jump was a reshoot, yes. Yeah. And the fruit machine thing, apparently, Edgar said he did it two weeks before the film got released. Really? He'd forgotten to put it in. Amazing. Wow. <laughs> but it is impressive. I mean, just, despite those little <laughs> last minute 
tweaks. I mean, this still feels like a much better thought out film than virtually anything else this summer. I mean, mm. so many films this summer have felt very much like they were assembled by committee. And in some cases, we know they literally were. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, they felt like, OK, yes, we're doing that, but we've got to do this for the fans. We've got to do that for the mainstream. We've got to, you know, have this thing happen here and and this one it just feels very much like they've got a vision they're staying true to that and that's what they did on screen in my mind comparing it to the first two of this trilogy it's I agree with you when I first saw it I went this is going to be a repeat of Shaun of the Dead maybe I think it's a cross of the two now you have the Mm -hmm. zombie like characters which you are fighting in a kind of automaton unstoppable force way and then you've got the but but very stoppable but very stoppable (laughs) and yet they come back to life instantly but we also have the for the greater good beigeification of the world where we just want things to be nice but we're willing to do bad things because we want the world to be a nicer place and that's Hot Fuzz's thing so I feel this movie is a tonally and thematically is those two movies together which is part of the reason why I got such a satisfaction by the way it ended is it went okay we've taken those two things and this is the conclusion of this trilogy and we're following through with it yeah we are getting the apocalypse and a semi-happy ending. Yeah, it's a ballsy ending because usually, you know, it's... You know, we talked about this with, uh, as you'll hear in a minute, with uh, Nick and Simon and Edgar, but usually our heroes are, are fighting to stop the apocalypse. And as it turns out in this film, <laughs> our heroes have fought to bring about <laughs> the apocalypse, <laughs> which so- is which is a pretty out there kind of thing to do. And, you know... Yeah, yeah. Thought it- and just did it on the hoof as well because he without realising quite what he's doing goes you're all a bunch of pricks I'm paraphrasing um, we don't want any of your weather spoonification and Starbucking that it that's yeah. it goodbye end of the world there's no like should we think about this well of course Gary doesn't know that's going to happen yeah but um, but I, I do think it's a, it's a it does continue the, the line of that character who blunders into every situation uh, but also by the end of the movie I mean Gary I know. I know some people already have seen the film, and they don't. They have a problem with Gary. Yeah. And I think if he were played by anyone other than Simon Pegg, the movie would be completely stone cold dead. Uh, because he, but, but Pegg is such an innate likability that he gets you past your initial problems with Gary, who's a very, very selfish character, who's an alcoholic, who has lots and lots of problems. Um, but by the end, you are rooting for him in his final uh, diatribe against the network. You are rooting for him. There is a moment where he it just clicks for him. And he's behind the bar, and he goes, "Okay, then, you know." And uh, you actually see almost the sea change within him. And mm. I think by that point, you're rooting for him. And it does have the best line in the movie, or the line most people are quoting anyway, which is, "Why don't you climb on your rocket and fuck off back to Legoland, you cunt?" Uh, which is, which is just genius. Hmm. Did you notice who was the voice of the network? Yes, Bill Nye. Bill Nye. And I, uh, I asked, uh, this isn't in the spoiler section interview, but I asked Edgar, "Was that an intentional joke? The end is nigh," and it was. So there you go. Oh, they these really guys, think these they're things operating through. on at least 14 levels. Wow. <laughs> he, he changed his name 20 years ago just to put that. Um, yeah, I also like the detail that that set at the end was circular, which kind of goes back. I didn't get that until the second time that it goes right back to the group therapy uh, bit right at the beginning. Oh, great. Yeah, oh, wow. in that kind of thing. Yeah. I was like, okay, they've modelled that set after that. I was on the set of the world's end when I visited the set. It was uh, they were doing the hole in the wall scene. Hmm. I was taken by the production designer Marcus Rowland on a tour of the World's End, and he was like, "Oh yeah, and this, oh yeah, this descends." I was like, "What?" Yeah, there's a little button that they press, and the whole thing goes down. Wait, they actually they actually set that up in a they actually set it up. Yeah, I would love to have seen that. I know it was pretty amazing. It was it was it was about thirty feet high in the air. It was great. Shit. Yeah. I I didn't have many problems with the movie. I did think that the climax was a little bit muddy for me. I'd be curious if it was for you guys as well. When they have the younger robot Gary, were they offering to transfer his consciousness 
into a robot body because I was muddy, bit muddy on that. To my mind, what they offer when you see this with Martin Freeman's character, who I forget the name of, when he becomes a blank, uh, he is still him. He's got all the memories and the life knowledge of what it is to be his character, his person, his human. But he's in this body which is essentially plastic and Lego-like. But he's drunk the Kool-Aid. He's part of the gang and he agrees with what they're saying and is kind of on board and on message. You're still you. I think there must be there must be various levels because they can clearly sort of download memories to these people um, to a greater or a lesser extent because you see people who you know clearly have no memory of these guys and the guys conclude that that is because they are robots. Mm-hmm. If you remember at one point, it's like oh that's why the guy in the pub didn't remember us. It's not that it's been twenty years and he forgot. It's because he's a robot. Whereas later on, it's clear that they've been downloading the memories they want the another barman to have into him. Yeah. Um, and so there must be different levels. They must be able to control exactly how much of your personality they put in to the empty. And then they've chosen leaders who obviously, in my mind, obviously, susceptible and very keen on this idea, i.e. Pierce Brosnan's teacher character. As a teacher, he wants what's best for you, all that sort of stuff. He's obviously somebody who really agrees with what they're doing. So he is chosen as the vessel that that is really mm. on board. Because mm. the authority figures are still in charge, like mm. Steve Oram's cop. But it's a bit confusing because if he really loves what they're doing, the network, then why has he had a replaced body? Because if he does love what they're doing, then he wouldn't need a replaced body. Maybe he doesn't genuinely love it. Maybe you're being harsh on him. (sighs) Yes, maybe the real Pierce Brosnan teacher (laughs) character actually (laughs) loathed this shit. Mm. But they used him because he's a figure of authority in the town as a vessel. There you go. That makes sense. I've worked out for myself. (laughs) I am now cross-eyed. I'm going to have a 13th pint. Do for it. Do for it. Go for it. Go for it. Um, speaking of things you may not necessarily notice at the first time around, um, the surnames of the characters in this film, we've got Gary King, Andrew Knightley, Stephen Prince, Oliver Chamberlain, and Peter Page. Wow. His nobleman, his court around him. Which makes sense with the ending when you have those... Gary King is the leader with his big hat and his four trusty servants. Mm. And they also do the King Arthur story, that comedy routine kind of works with the king thing also did you spot that uh oliver's bluetooth headset mm-hmm. which he's always got on has a blue light only when he's been turned into a blank when he returns from the bathroom so for the rest of the yeah. film it's on has a blue light on that's a bit amazing that is a bit amazing that's a bit amazing <laughs> i like that a lot also did you notice at the end he has a football for a head <laughs> what did anyone else no, anyone else spot that, that. Which apparently was a real football that she was put on Martin Freeman's head. Really? <laughs> yeah, so he was just walking around blind for a little bit. It's not a CG effect, it's actual uh, real football glued out of his head, um, which would be awesome if true. Yeah. Uh, I, I really like the idea as well. There was a, a, a lovely shout out to the Three Musketeers, uh, Five Musketeers yep. thing as well. What I like about this film as well, I, I love the relationship between ultimately between Gary and Andy, you know, those two guys really come into their own towards the end of the film. And Nick Frost is hilarious once he starts drinking when he crashes through the door of the pub. I think it's either the trusty servant or the two-headed dog. I'm a, I need to rewatch it three and a half times now to see it uh, to get that in, into my head. It's just he's just absolutely brilliant. But one of the things I really love about it as well is that I think more so than Sean and Fuzz, it's a true ensemble piece, mm. and uh, it's great to see. Uh, I love the fact that they give so much for for Paddy Considine's uh, Stephen to do, and he's so important to. To the uh, the story as well, and in fact, he's actually kind of the romantic lead of the story, which is which is great. Um, but also, Eddie Marsan is, I think, almost this movie's comedic secret weapon. He's the breakout hero. 
He is, he, and and it, it's it's a, it's a bit of a shame what happens to to Peter ultimately. Uh, I can see why they had they went with it. You know, there are numerous references to the five musketeers, and at the beginning, you know, Gary even says, "Oh, you can kill two off and still have three. Um, but it was a little bit of a shame. But he's so funny, mm. you know, just giggling along to King Gay ten minutes after hearing it, or doing incredible burp acting. How does he deliver dialogue and burp at the same time? Rada, need, darling, Rada, Rada. Money well spent, I think. Uh, there's a great trailer for Filth uh, where you can see Eddie Marson rubbing his nipples on the dance floor. <laughs> it is the most incredible. If you don't watch the film, that's up to you, but watch the trailer. Do yourself a favour. This is I, a year of Eddie Marson being oh, debauched. And then, and then you think too happy-go-lucky and you go, this is not... He's, he is amazing. <laughs> you think being. a Tyrannosaur, Shit. which was the last time you worked with Paddy Constantine. I already blanked that out of my head. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's... Deliberate blank. blank? Deliberate blank. Deliberate blank. So yes, I thought he was spectacular. He made me laugh. Per joke, he made me laugh the most. Should we talk about the pub signs? Go for it. How many clever things are there on the pub signs? I think the most obvious one, I'm sure the one that everybody spotted, is the fact that the king's head is, in fact, the Gary King's, Simon Pegg's head. Yeah. Um, in a fright wig. <laughs> in a fright wig. And also the trusty servant. The trusty servant on the sign of the trusty servant resembles Michael Smiley, uh, mm. uh, which is which is great. Also, in that scene, um, we had Reese Shearsmith on the podcast, Nick, and uh, I think he and Michael Smiley filmed their cameo in the trusty servant, about a week after finishing on a field in England. So you know, if you if you, if you hadn't already got your fill of Smiley Shearsmith action, that scene delivers. Mm. The mermaid is um, the marmalade sandwich. Oh yeah, yeah. Blonde, yeah. redhead, blonde. Very good. The cross hands is the same configuration of putting a hand just above the wrist as well, which is what happens in the film. Very good. The thing that made me chuckle and also get a bit weirded out is that when the twins who are obviously the two-headed dog which at times when you say that out loud sounds quite sexist but I don't mean it that way when they get defeated but not quite defeated the one one of them comes back and has feet and legs on the shoulders yeah right so she has become a quadruped i.e. a dog Mm -hmm. i.e. the two-headed dog Mm -hmm. so it's kind of brilliant and also weird because I don't think I've ever seen another film in my entire life where I'll see somebody beat somebody else or try to beat somebody else to death with leg arms with, <laughs> with, with their twin sister's leg arms it's just yeah. it's just bizarre when you put it like that it, it is quite weird I guess that's one of the nods to John Carpenter in this movie as well that I, I really really like something we haven't discussed with the filmmakers yet so I may be completely off, off the, uh, <laughs> the point here but that does feel almost thing like to me the idea of a two headed dog person with leg arms but also the, the numerous shots of the blanks standing in the street immobile watching our heroes as they go about their business really recalled for me and it, again this might not be the reference but uh, Carpenter's Prince of Darkness where lots of homeless people do that outside in a really creepy fashion oh, yeah. that's midwitch cuckoos for me yeah. they're not very subtle are they the blanks in um, what way in their surveillance yeah they don't have to be do they I have a slightly unanswered question in the in the uh, the first fight in the uh, cross hands yes yeah in the in the bathroom uh, the blanks turn on the hand dryers twice to drown out the noise of the fight but I'm assuming that everyone else in the pub is blanks at that point maybe so not quite you think there might be a few I think there might be a few humans yeah. in there mixed up with it at that do point do you think any humans in Newton um, Haven aren't aware of what's going on because Michael Smiley's character Reverend Green yeah. is kind of in cahoots with him he knows what's going on but do you think there's anyone who hasn't A been taken over or B doesn't know Exactly. That that's a little bit weird. You know, is there that sort of body snatchers element to it? Where are there maybe kids or something? There are people who are unassimilated. Yeah. If I do have a problem with this film, and I'll be honest, I do have a problem with this film in so much as what I'm about to say. Um, it's the mythology that goes around how this works 
as 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 blanks um like they seem to be replaceable and then if you kill them how do they die that electricity they seem to suck from the hand dryer how does that work no, that's not no, they don't suck electricity from the hand dryer what do they do then what are they doing they just is that just they, to, it's to make noise so that people don't hear the phone mm. and, and when they pop the heads off they just pop them back on that's fine how do you make them die and not come back there seems to be a you have to smash their heads to kill them you smash their heads but then you can put on someone else's head and then that's fine yeah I I liked that but I I take your point it's a little bit it's a little bit confusing for these guys which I've just been singing their praises in terms of them taking everything to the nth degree and really explaining things and structuring it that's that that, the whole mythology around them as baddos is confusing for me and maybe I'm an idiot but it confused me at times so there well (laughs) in more uh, exciting news I've just downloaded uh, the Craig and Wakes and the Mitwitch Cuckoos while we've been doing this very podcast. So oh, there you go. Fantastic. Enjoy. Everyone's going to be happy. It's that. a Craig and Goodread. <laughs> hey, I'm going cuckoo for John Wind Wind Windham. Chris, you were saying something interesting to me the other day. Uh, Ari Basil. Yeah. Well, I, I, I had this little theory that um, there's a character called Basil played by uh, David Badley who shows up halfway through and, and doesn't murder everyone doesn't murder everyone nice for a change <laughs> yeah, precisely and, uh, and he delivers a ton of exposition so I was kind of wondering was that a deliberate <gasps> Basil, Basil exposition, exposition <laughs> reference and um, uh, I've had it confirmed by Edgar Wright that it kind of was and kind of wasn't that um, he was based on someone that they, uh, Edgar actually knew uh, growing up in Wells in Somerset but I don't know why I went to Somerset but uh, he, they did refer to him as Basil Exposition while writing it, but it wasn't necessarily a deliberate Austin Powers reference, which would be a little out of place, <laughs> as we said, in this movie. But I'm, yeah, I must say his crazy straw theory. line made me laugh, I think, more than anything else. <laughs> really? Yeah, I love the way he clears his throat before he delivers the, uh, the block of exposition to Stephen. He goes, <laughs> and he carries on, uh, which I really, really liked. It says here on the cast list, obviously we've, we, we don't need to talk about it really, but we've got the likes of Alice Lowe that we spotted yeah. and, and, and all that stuff, and Rafe Spall is one of the people who gets shown around the house early no, on. Sarah Finowich. Oh, disappointed no, that. Yeah, that is a shame. I know. Jessica Hines so Jessica Hines yeah. mm. Simon said they didn't have a role that they thought was worthy oh, she could have played the twins Jessica. Like she could have played the twins but then that would, have been, that would have been more of effects and, and not, not just that that would have kind of been weirding me out to see those two but yeah but you get that slight bit of weirding out seeing them interacting with you know Mark Heap and Julia Deacon but at least that's kind of in and out like kind of it's done reasonably quickly where if they actually had a massive fight scene did anybody spot Garth Jennings yeah yeah he was in the trailer so where was he? <laughs> there's, a, there's a shot of him. Uh, I can't remember the pub because I've only seen it two and a half times. But there, there's a shot it's, it's when, when, they, when they when they yeah, when when people start to stare at them. There's a, a, a free shot of three guys standing at the bar, and he's on the left hand ah. side, looking quite sinister because he's not a sinister man. Gough Jennings, he's a lovely man. Turns out he and, can pull it uh, off. He 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 summed up all his menace for that shot. I think. <laughs> <laughs> But he is in. Uh, he's in. He does cameos in lots of things. He's all over it. He's all over it. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you for answering my question. <laughs> Good. Any other cameos that we liked? I mean, the the, the Brosnan cameo was going to be discussed in the uh, in the interview portion mm-hmm. later on. Uh, continuing our grand edition of X Bonds, Laserbees next presumably. Um, so, any anyone else that we missed that we liked? No, we've mentioned Bill Nye. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was the the main one. I mean, obviously, we've we've also you know touched on the the spaced alums who uh, who show up. Um, so uh, I, th- I thought that was all good. It didn't take you out of the film. It was just nice to see the sort of the um, the ensemble uh, cast kind of reunited a little bit. 
Um, but no, it wasn't. I mean, this isn't a film that has sort of stunt cameos all over the place. It doesn't sort of want to fill its boots with all their celebrity friends. It just kind of goes with people who would fit in the in the environment, I think. I liked how, um, if you see the uh, the opening uh, group therapy session, uh, the the actress who played Mary, the zombie girl, in Shaun of the Dead, is sitting beside Gary. Oh. Uh, and the twins, who were zombies in Shaun of the Dead, and they were the Michael Butchers in Hot Fuzz, uh, show up in the very final scene as well, uh, as, as the, the guys in the Auntie Blank's pub. Did you spot the name of that pub? The Rising Sun. Yeah, I saw, I saw it's the sunrise, but it probably also saw a rising sun now I think about it. That's actually a pub name. That could be a good pub quiz question. What is the name What's of the 13th, 13th yeah. pub <laughs> in the world's end? And because, as you'll hear in the interview yeah. portion, there actually was at one point a 13th pub as well. That's uh, a double so, whammy trick question. So that would have been the 14th pub. Yeah, yeah. double 13 or yeah. something. Um, I, I, I kind of felt like with that final scene that they should do some kind of comic book spin-off sequel uh, just chronicling the post-apocalyptic adventures of Gary and his gang of teens. Gary and the Blanks. It's a good band name, write that down. It is a good band name, fantastic. Um, So uh, I think that I I would like to see that, I would read that, I would be interested to see what happens next. Well, But I don't want, want, and I'm sure they're not planning, a film sequel. I just want to see it in a comic. They're not, I mean, that's a a great thing about their movies so far, is that they've resisted the temptation to sequelise them, and, uh, and I think they always will resist the temptation, and you know, I don't know what the story is with Sean, honestly. I don't see that there's a story there to continue after that because at some point, <laughs> Ed is going to rot away to nothing. <laughs> it's just going to be it's just going to be Sean and his skeletonized best mate just sitting there like, uh, dead. That's a really poor, gloomy poor thought. I know, I know. I do want to see a Hot Fuzz sequel. I'll say it. You yeah. know, because, come on, all the films that it's kind of inspired by have sequels. But yeah, Hot Fuzz 2, the, the Bad Boys 2 equivalent. <laughs> they did talk about that, didn't they? They've joked before that it would be called uh, Pigs in the City. Nicholas Angel and Danny Butterman live on in another universe. And the same with this as well. You know, Mm. would you want to watch Gary and his blank friends running around having adventures or I don't know? Not in a film. I just think it could be a funny comic. Literally just a one-off sort of what happened next I think would be hilarious. Okay. I think it would be great. You could go to the Thunderdome and hang out with (laughs) Tina Turner. (laughs) Watch that. We don't need another hero there, okay? That'd be amazing. Any other little Easter eggs that people may have missed? Uh, Yeah, the guys get the train from High Wycombe train station at the beginning because that's where the movie Quatermass and the Pit is set. Ooh. Which is another inspiration. And also the five bars of light that is the Bill Nighy kind of character at the end. Those five bars appear lots. Apparently there's graffiti. Uh, They're on recycling bins. Um, and it's the logo for the made-up brewery, Winshire. Oh, so keep very an eye good. out for that. Winshire or Winshire? It's spelled W-I-N-S-H-E-R-E. Well, that's like, you know, a bunch of different county names. They're there to trip up Americans who have no idea how to say Worcestershire sauce. We're, we're Worcestershire. Look at Baruga. So Winshire, Winshire. Just have a pint of it and relax. Yeah, <laughs> sit sit back, relax. Oh. I'm reassured by your brother, Philip DeSemlin. Nick, uh, that the couple of letters have been faded out on the side of the train that they come in on. So it's not Chiltern Railways, it's Chiltern Ailways. <laughs> what? That's astonishing if that's deliberate. I would love it if it weren't deliberate. I would love it if all of these things <laughs> that we give them so much credit for, and you go, oh, that's clever, because that references that. And then Simon and, and uh, Edgar are going, Haha, yes, of course. <laughs> we don't just use the same ideas over and over. <laughs> I assume with those guys that it is deliberate. Yeah, I'm, I'm more likely to more inclined. Yeah, because there are other directors where you go, "Oh, did you did you mean to do that?" And they'll go, "No." no. But, but I think <laughs> with these guys, they do 
think a lot about this stuff. Mm. Can um, I double check something? They've said this is the final of the trilogy. Now, they never really designed it from the outset as a trilogy. Does this mean we're not going to get another movie with Nick and Simon in a lead role slash reasonably big roles and Edgar directing? No, I think we will. So we will see that, but that won't be part of this thing. Well, I think what well, I think we might get ultimately, say, five, six years down the line, I because um, I obviously interviewed them all quite extensively for the, the feature we did in Empire. Uh, well, Nick, you were a zombie in our World's End shoot. <laughs> there you go. That's why we chose the man. Um, yeah, and, and they they all talked about it. You know, they're definitely going to work together again, uh, but it just might be in a, in a different combination. So it might be Nick directing, for example, from a script that he wrote with Edgar, maybe. Yeah, but I, I think, honestly, you might get a, either just a straight comedy that doesn't have any uh, genre overtones, or you might get some sort of drama, or, or who knows. But it's also interesting to note that the way that the... Simon and Nick relationship has evolved over the three films so they might be enemies next time they're actually you know, facing off against each other which would be uh, a nice dynamic that we haven't seen and of course Paul as well as you know, through the, you know, in terms of their evolution but don't, but don't tease me if it was those guys head to head I mean that would be that would be weird yeah that'd be great it'd be, weird. Nick. it'd be weird but great but it's, it's weird in this film to see them fighting as well at the end in, in the world's end um, but it's that sort of drunken mate's having a go at each other thing that you know I think we've we've probably all seen and then immediately it's resolved with that kind of a yeah I love you guy you know, he's oh a, shut up yeah he's a cock but he's my cock you know which, which, I, which I really really liked and in fact I loved all the way through that, that the modulation of the drunkenness for which they actually hired a physical comedy expert to kind of work out with him to gauge okay so maybe you're six pints in so you'd be this drunk but once you've fought 40 people your adrenaline spike will take you down to about three pints <laughs> but then once that wears off you'll actually be more drunk than you were initially so it's, it's great I love the, I love the sequence uh, when they go from the good companions all the way through the trusty servant and they're just getting progressively more pissed you know they're just falling off bar stools and mm. burping and it's just uh, that, that stuff is really really fun but hey drink responsibly let's talk about the music because the music uh, as with a lot of Edgar Wright joints is great like yeah, it's fantastic. a lot of time yet again over this and it shows it's massively 90s nostalgic it was uh, on in the office last week and, and everybody was, was reliving their university days I think I believe every song on the soundtrack was released between 87 and 92 Okay, I believe this is what Mr Pegg has said in an interview um, there is a lot of good music in fact some of it is not on the official soundtrack which is absolutely brilliant that's the one we were listening to um, the track that opens the film Summer's Magic didn't make it on but uh, the stuff like Primal Scream Loaded Soup Dragons I'm Free which is on Gary's mixtape they're kind of singing along to Happy Monday Suede The Doors The Doors wasn't released between 87 and 92 so they lie they lie I lied um, but when was The Doors film? That was <laughs> 1991 yeah. Ooh, so uh, it works kind of works kind of works I'm giving them a little bit of a get a jail free card, but that's still. Yeah, but they were they were um, <laughs> listening to all this stuff on iTunes while they were writing the script, and it shows because uh, the lyrics for a couple of the tracks have actually made it into the script as dialogue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the idea that Gary King regurgitates uh, lyrics that he hears, but he's no idea that he's actually regurgitating lyrics. He actually thinks he's come up with stuff like, you know, I'm free to do what I want any old time, and at the end when he you know he yells the primal scream lyrics back or the sample back at the network. 
this is a weird situation where I've edited the interview that you guys are referring to, so I would like to make an addendum to something that Edgar says erroneously. And Edgar, if you're listening, I mean no offence, I'm just doing you a favour. You refer to the film where that sample is taken from as the Young Angels. It's not the Young Angels, it's actually called the Wild Angels, if you guys want to look it up. Oh, does he do? Oh, okay. That's so simple mistake to make. Simple mistake. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, check it out. It was uh, released in 1966, and it is very weird to see the actual... So what it is? What is it that you want yeah, to do? Yeah, Peter Fonda. It's been... Yeah, I watched it with yeah. you just before we came up to do this. It's kind of weird. It's very strange. Does anyone know the thing at the very, very beginning of the movie? There's a... There's a... What I presume is a sample from another film or an advert or something, a guy talking about man basically being a one-off and indefatigable creature. No, it's the which beginning is, of... It's the opening of uh, Summer's Magic. What's that? Which is a song, Mark Summers. It is a magic round of attention, but I didn't. I didn't know that they were all linked. Uh, that sort of stuff. So, but I still want to know what film that from. But what's that sampling? I want to know what that what that is. It's a dream within your dream. Because it, it obviously yeah. harks back. I mean, they're, they're basically laying out right from the very beginning of the movie the the theme of the movie that mankind is unique and will not be ultimately will not be starbucked by uh, other planets, which is which is a, a lovely theme and I guess something that that. You know, Simon has said this in the past. It harks back to both Sean and Fuzz, which is the individual against the collective. So it's Sean against the zombies, or Nicholas and Danny against the NWA. And I still love that joke. Um, and in this movie, it's, it's the the guys against the blanks and the network, um, which again, in the in a, you know, act of foreshadowing, is foreshadowed in Pub Four when their phones go down, and uh, and and Andy says, "Oh, it must be in the network." Well, it is. I mean, it's it's insane how tight the script is actually. What is everyone's favourite musical moment from the film? Because I think mine's got to be the Doors song, Alabama song, which is when they're walking pissed and there's mm. that fantastic montage. And they actually played that on the set, I believe. So they were all walking in time with it. And mm. then they all drink a pint That's in cool. time with it. Um, but I absolutely love that. It's a great, great sound. Well, I, I'm, I'm not a big Primal Scream fan, but I now love that track. Yeah. Uh, because it's just used brilliantly. I'm a huge fan of Teenage Fan Club. And I'm... I'm really delighted to see that uh, yet another Teenage Fan Club song has made it into movies after last year's uh, the concept made it into uh, Young Adult uh, and it's What You Do To Me which is found on their, their album Bandwagon-esque so, which is also where the concept comes from so it's not their best album it's weird but anyway there you go um, I'd have to go with, uh, with Loaded actually because that made me laugh more than anything else Soup Dragon with I'm Free is that it? yeah that's just a cracking tune, and you can't not love um, Fool's Gold. Yeah. That's obligatory. It's interesting looking at the track listing, how many of the track titles see it sound sinister when you think really? of the plot. There's, uh, here's, there's Join Our Club, 20 Seconds to Comply, There's No Other Way, but even Come Home by James right. applies to the plot. Oh, really? So, okay. Yeah. So it's not just like, hey, here's some tunes from the 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they've actually put a lot of thought into whether the lyrics and titles match up to what's going on. The soundtrack's fantastic. Uh, I, I, I love uh, Edgar Wright's use of, of pop songs uh, throughout, throughout the movies so far. I'm not a huge fan, if I'm honest, of the scores in Sean, Fuzz, and The World's End. But uh, but the use of pop songs is fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. But, you know, those guys don't just throw uh, this shit together, you know. And just to prove it, we spoke to Messrs. Peg, Frost, and Wright about all kinds of stuff, from the Pierce Brosnan cameo to the audacious ending and early iterations of the story, including a possible 13th pub. And they were talking to myself and Helen. Enjoy. Yeah, we've got a question here from Mr. I like to spoil the world's end, who asks, uh, um, <laughs> I guess, where, where do you want to start, Helen? What's your first? Well, the 12 pub names, did they have a particular meaning, the names? Yes. Yes, they do. And if if you look back across them, then they 
pretty much describe what happens within you know the first post of the first one and the old familiar is exactly the same as the first post the famous cock is gary obviously kind of at his worst yeah his worst he comes back the cross hands is where the first fight happens uh the good companions is where they decide to stick together and you know carry on with the crawl yeah Mm -hmm. the trusty servant is smiley's character the reverend green who is this you know who is the one of the humans that has agreed to go along with what's going on the two-headed dog is the twins the mermaid of the the marmalade sandwich because they're sirens sirens. beehive is the hive of like a of activity activity alien activity the king's head is uh is gary's mind kind of thing you know it's like uh the hole in the wall is obvious because it's literal Yes, and then there's the world's and end. And the world's yeah. end is obvious too. <laughs> yeah, the king's head, complete with a uh, picture of you above the. I know. Which the which that pub is kept. That <laughs> really? pub is yeah. changing its name to the king's head and keeping that sign. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So, so that looks in... like a live version <laughs> rendering from the film Dogtanyan. <laughs> <laughs> it does look like Dogtanyan. If Dogtanyan was real, it's a Buzzfeed thing. <laughs> Did you go through many? That Simon's playing one of the musker hounds. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be on the internet in seconds. You know that. Um, <laughs> Did you go through any iterations of the names in terms of fitting it into the plot and making really, sure actually, we, things we, work? We sort of knew what we wanted to happen in the scenes, and then we went. We had a one of those big book of pub names, and uh, we went. Through, all of the pub names are real. I mean, the truth of it is, is that the, the you know the world's end itself. Why we always like, stuck to that title is because that is a pub where me and Simon used to m- meet sometimes. Because we used to when you still lived in Kentish Town, I think and I was in Islington, we would meet at the World's End in Camden and go to Odeon Camden Parkway yeah. and watch films such as X-Men or Run, Lola, Run. <laughs> yeah. We'd also Remember seen that? gigs downstairs. What was that place? Underworld. Under the World's yeah. yeah, Underworld. We'd seen gigs there as well. So that, it, it always stuck in my mind, even though there are more than one um, pub, there are more pubs called the World's End. It always stuck in my mind that that was an interesting, what? interesting, interesting World's End fact. Actually, seeing as we're in this territory, is that originally in the script there were thirteen pubs. We we pulled it down to twelve because it felt more in keeping with the twelve steps of recovery. But uh, the thirteenth pub was called the Bold Face Stag and featured a scene where Gary King mined along to the whole of bat dance uh, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like when it came to sort of like uh, cut a pub out it was unfortunately the one I was thinking mm, maybe you should lose that bat dance scene so a, lo- a longer version of the script would have featured the in- whole of bat dance you know Prince probably would not have cleared it <laughs> so not. then well, you it may never have happened anyway just film it so we can stick it on the DVD is that it was, it, it, it no was, we never we never shot it weirdly it was one of the first ideas we had and and I remember when we were doing press for Paul, I think it was, in America, some kid gave me the Batman soundtrack and I was and I was so shocked because it was like we've just had this idea about, you know, because obviously we make reference to it in Shaun of the Dead and to have a whole scene in The World's Own where Gary, like, and to their horror, they're watching him do this and he does this really elaborate dance routine to it. I'll, be, it, I'll back up one in case went. P- Prince said no was... Uh... Doctoring the TARDIS by the Time Lords. <laughs> At which point, probably said yes. <laughs> <laughs> At which well, point, no, but you know what you'd have done then? That would have equally um, thorny because then you have been giving Gary Glitter money. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. That's a bad it thing. Is. That there is a bad thing. Thing. Gary Glitter <laughs> That money, is true. <laughs> um, At which point in the movie would that have come? It was, uh, it, was be- like it was between. It was four. Was it four or five? It was before the cross hands. That's so right, it would yeah. have been four, and cross hands would have been five. I mean, there's a lot of foreshadowing in the movie. The, the whole thing's just beautifully constructed. There's so many calls back much, to, Helen. You, Helen. Know, you know, Thank you, Helen. to uh, things we've seen before. I mean, how many? How how do you fit it all together? How do you jigsaw it all? I think we just, you know, when we write the script, we just try and dovetail 
you know, the, the, there. Are, that's the thing is that in the first like thirty minutes of the film, it's quite a slow burn, mm. and we wanted to to feel like that you could make a movie where it could just continue as a sort of a comedy drama and feel like sort of like a nice Mike Lee type film about these friends. <laughs> but in every scene, everything they're talking about is all like setting up for like some payoff later. So, you know, it was just it was just we we would do a chart, we'd do our flip chart thing, but we would like list out all the pubs and then we would write what things we wanted to happen in that and which people are going to appear here and come back later and uh, what uh, like themes you we were going to set up so we we would just be extremely so there's not really like a line or a bit that doesn't somehow come back later and you know we, we 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 love that kind of thing i think we like rewarding the audience's patience or like for the people the sharp-eyed sharp-eared mm. people out there they kind of can see that there's some there's something on a surface level to enjoy in the scene because it's funny and the actors are great um but then there's something else going on as well and there's there's lots of little setups all the way through we're very meticulous this time I and mean, even more so than usual i think um after hot fuzz which was which felt like it, it got so huge and we had to sort of wrestle it into something we decided to to always have a plan to make this about 105 minutes long, I think was our initial kind of pitch, and then literally break it down into page numbering and 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 look at it quite scientifically in the outset to try and you know make it the right shape, and and it, it worked as a as a as a technique. You know, we were mm. we were pretty studious about it, and um, and I re- I enjoyed that aspect of it this time. It was it felt like we had a hot, a hot fuzz. We kind of let it go for a bit, and it was suddenly 180 pages long. Whereas this, it was always about 105, hovering around that area, 110, 105. And, uh, and it, it was a much more sort of productive process, I think. But does that mean there's a room for improvisation in this? Because Edgar, you told me once that Nick improvised uh, possibly the funniest line in the movie, which... I think that came out in rehearsals, didn't it? Was it rehearsals? That? Smashy, smashy Eggman? <laughs> that was, that was a, a disc- I can't remember the, the, which of the two of you actually came up with that one. Or was, but I don't know. I think it was but, just a joint. Yeah, but it was that was in rehearsal. We don't really... There's nothing in the... Yeah. What we'd like to do is write the script and then rehearse it with the actors and then funny lines that come out of that, including smashy, smashy Eggman, uh, are then written into the script. So on the day because it's always like an ambitious schedule and we've got so much to cram in like you know and especially on a film like this where there's a lot of action and effects in it it means that you have to kind of get through the dialogue scenes a bit quicker mm. which is also I think good for the the actors anyway because if you're shooting an argument scene you don't want an argument scene to go over two days you want to do it all in one day so we're pretty like stick we, we stick to the script basically but we have workshopped it and we okay. have rehearsed it before that is that because what well, actors do? If you do an argument scene over two days, do you, it does it fester a little bit? Is I that think it's tiring. You, yeah, you lose the gravitas or the you know, it, it just becomes it's less just not arguing as much fun as, as a... fighting physically, which is yeah. much more fun. <laughs> trying to get it over with. So when when you came up with the name The World's End, did that did that suggest you the scale of the movie, or did you have the, the scale in in mind already? We um, we knew what we wanted to kind of like what the threat was going to be, and. It's funny there there was a, there was this is this is going way way back. There was at one point a really silly idea um that was one of those kind of fanciful like um pie in the sky ideas that we were excited about for an afternoon and then thought that's impossible is we thought of doing a sequel to Shaun of the Dead where it would be an alternate reality sequel where Shaun would turn left instead of right and instead of it being a zombie film it would be like a I don't know a body snatchers film. And it's funny we 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 I think we talked about it for an afternoon very excitedly and then thought 
it would be impossible because you'd have to do it right now. Otherwise, the actor's going to look older and it'll all look weird. But you know, it's one of the one of the germs that came away from that is that there's something nice about paranoid sci-fi of the John Wyndham, um, John Christopher like ilk is that like where where the threat is intelligent and can talk and is like sort of claiming identities it ties really nicely into the idea of reunions and also the idea of uh, have these characters changed you've got four guys who become grown-ups you've got gary king who is like sort of like pretending to be a teenager and then you've got this town which is this weird facsimile of what they once knew and so that always tied into the sci-fi theme and then like you know as as the film progresses we get deeper and deeper into that in terms of like um, what if we could offer you a way to kind of be your young self and, mm. and elements like that but so we and we always knew where we wanted to end up in the very original idea for the story we had the idea that they'd actually go back in time and that sort of became so unwieldy and also felt like it maybe had been done in other movies with we you know even like back to the future type thing part two just thought let's ditch that and then and then we came up with how to end it with the same grace note at the very end we love the idea of that gary eventually wound up with his original young friends that, that he that's and the, the only way we could figure that at first was a time travel thing but as edgar said we had this kind of like you know we doubted that the soundness of that idea so when the the idea of the network arose and we started to you know kind of hatch out this idea of this sort of intergalactic starbucks sort of you know witherspooning the universe it became apparent that we would be able to do it because we could have gary with his the, the counterparts of his younger selves and that that was always our in the same way that ed in the shed was uh, long before we wrote the whole of Shaun of the Dead, that image was always going to be the last image. Was mm. It was a happy ending. It was well, Shaun and Ed together, you know. Who's like to do end scenes which tease the idea of further adventures that we'll never shoot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was going to ask about the, the apocalyptic kind of ending because you know, most, most movies like this is about averting the apocalypse and in this one it's actually kind of causing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that, that was a big thing that, that actually differentiated from both Shaun and, and sort of other you know movies like sort of about the apocalypse you know like serious ones as well is that in sean it's not sean's fault that there's a zombie apocalypse and it's not his job to save the day but in this film it might be gary king's fault that all this has happened (laughs) and so we like this idea of gary king as a character who starts as a social nuisance that becomes a cosmic nuisance like and, and and one of the big ideas about it there's this thing of like you can't argue with a drunk and what if that guy that you cannot argue with in a bar is now having like a face-off with some kind of alien god. It's like this is like the, <laughs> and has a lawyer the, with him. And, and there's the, the best and the worst person to get into an argument with. So we like this, like you know, because it's that thing of like sort of like Simon's character is an extremely unlikely hero and does a lot of bad things in the movie. But we always have a lot of sympathy for our characters, and it's like, how can this character pull triumph out of like? absolute rock bottom and I think he does in a way you know it's like you I would hope that the audience would be on his side you know versus the galactic weather spoons well also because it's what they're they're offering is kind of you know it's it's not terrible really it's it's kind of peace and but but they're what they're they're offering beige as the future of earth and we you know as human beings don't want that and so Gary really does you know he steps in on behalf of humanity and he kind of does the right thing even though what it results in is the apocalypse and we figured we had to go through with that it couldn't be a cop-out we had to end cause an end in in some respects of the way we live it's also it's funny i think we're all of the age where we grew up in the cruise missile crisis and i remember that very vividly being something i was very scared about as a kid 
and then when Threads was on TV, mm. I remember that really vividly as being like absolutely terrifying. And watching it again recently, we watched it, didn't we? we? Did, yeah. Like the end of Threads, where they end up in like a sort of essentially like a go back to like um, medieval sort of yeah. feudal times, Horrible. sort of neo medieval like sort of tilling the land and sort Ooh. of like scraping around for like crops. It always really struck me that nuclear winter ending. So I was trying to think of this. We we tried to conceive of this kind of climax that would actually somehow be like a a happy end of the world. I am for those times. <laughs> exactly, but that's the thing. But that's exactly it. You you do get the feeling that Andy might be a little happier as a yeah, hunter gatherer at the end. It's audacious as well because uh, not only does Gary you know cause the destruction of most of the human race, but uh, you know from a from a storytelling point of view, Gary starts off narrating the film, but Andy finishes it. Can yeah, you talk that about was, that, that decision as well and. and that was just as that. a sort of nice poetic bookend mm. is that like um you know the the out of the sort of the you know like it's it's Simon and Nick are the sort of the leaders to have one like do the prologue and one do the epilogue I thought it was mm. kind of sort of sweet in a way because also what's nice I hopefully what's nice about it is that Gary is extremely wistful about 1990 but at the end Andy after being sort of extremely tough on Gary and rightly so throughout gets to be wistful about 1990 as well at the very end which I think is like a sweet kind of bookend basically and uh, Nick you you also get the uh, you get the Cornetto shot (laughs) yeah I do in this one I'm thrilled was uh, was that a real rapper they call it the Wall's Pop shot they do call it the Wall's Pop shot Uh, yeah it was was how many many takes did that take because I imagine oh a bunch right it was like the world's yes. smallest kite, wasn't it? That's how they did it. They kind of flew it into shot. <laughs> yeah, it was amazing. And did you have to run uh, that line at the end past Primal Screen? If you look at the end credits, it actually says um, copyright um, MGM dialogue from the Young Angels. So you had to clear it with the original film because that's wow. actually the, the clip. The sample, isn't it? The sample from uh, Loaded Primal Screen is from a, a biker movie, a Roger Corman biker movie called The Young Angels. But that was always that was that was in the first draft of the script was that like that is what he's got going on in his brain. The soundtrack of the movie, all these kind of hedonistic, early late eighties, early nineties, like baggy, druggy kind of like party anthems. A lot of those, a lot of which have never gone away. Like, I was in IKEA and I heard like I'm free by the Super Dragons playing in LA. <laughs> I was in LA and I heard the Super Dragons playing. I was like, what? Like after we'd made the movie. But um, we like this idea that Gary King as a character, he those are his hymns like he's <laughs> going to take those songs and he's going to live those songs and like that's on constant repeat on the stereo and those are the you know the, the, that's the his um his tablets we laughed a lot during rehearsal when we decided that me and Paddy would do the uh, chiming in with yeah the, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, <I know>. yeah. <laughs> we laughed a lot that made us laugh a lot that we thought oh, fuck it let's let's do the whole thing uh, just a couple of very last quick uh, questions, guys. Um, one of my favourite scenes was the uh, the Jaws scene, the scar, the scars comparison ah. scene. Um, See, I would think of that as the thing scene, but you're right; it's the Jaws scene. It's a bit, well, a bit of both, I guess. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned there's a there's a reference to the uh, the knife trick from Aliens. Yes, which made me think: Have you guys done this? Have you tried? He scarred my thumb up. I did. I stabbed knife, him on. Stabbed was it on knife. space? Wasn't it? Uh, it was on Sean of the... Yes. Oh, was it? Oh, it's space. Yes, it was doing space. The tank scene. Scene. I think yeah. that's the only reference yeah, to a film. Really. There's only two references to films that in dialogue. Like The Omen, the Omen and... and Aliens. 
and call it the knife. Is that funny thing? Is it's really quickly that anybody who knows that is saying we play the knife game from Aliens, and everybody knows what you're talking <laughs> well, about. We, we agonise about it. So we don't want to make any references in this movie. We don't want to carry on being the guys that make references, particularly after we splurged so many in Paul. It was like that's it was over. It's over. It's over. The reference. So we we were trying to figure out a way to describe this game, and it, we had to go with the that's the, how everyone knows it. It's the knife game from Aliens. So yeah. Uh, so you but have that, that joke there with Nick doing that was that was quite a late joke in the writing process and it, it makes me laugh you get now. a nice shot of Paddy Constantine's ass. Mm. we do <laughs> we, we do indeed sweet. it's got something for everyone that's seen it scalloped and the last very very quick thing is uh, it's full of cameos Constantine's ass sounds actually like a great pub it does doesn't it <laughs> the Constantine's yeah. ass. Um, the Brosnan cameo how did, they, how did they happen how did they come about um, is this a grand tradition of ex-bonds in your movies? Well, the thing huh. is, now, yeah, know, we, what we plan to do for the 10th anniversary of Shaun of the Dead is digitally insert Roger Moore into Shaun of the Dead. <laughs> <laughs> so they're going to make the whole... As Ed. Of, as Ed. Yeah, no, he's now going to be playing... Um, face replacement. Yeah, yeah, he's now going to be playing... Um, Could I get any of you cunts a drink? <laughs> <laughs> he, what's it, like... Well, Piers is playing, like, essentially my old drama teacher, Mr. Wilde. Mr. Wilde. Yeah, he was in the, in the script, he was called Mr. Wilde for a long time. Mr. Wilde is actually in Hot Fuzz and then we changed to Mr. Shepard because the character is like the shepherd who's going to lead them to like uh, a better life and it was great working with him because it was like just working on the costume is like we wanted him to look like a trendy teacher and and one of the things is like the guy Speranza the great costume designer he found this picture of Eric Clapton I said that's exactly it <laughs> Eric Clapton in like 1992 I said that's exactly it he but Pitt Pierce was great. I mean, he's got such an amazing voice. And in fact, one of his lines in it is is one of my is the line in the film that whenever I'm watching it, I chime along with it because it makes me laugh so much as Pierce going, no, Peter, of course I'm not a robot. <laughs> it's like, it makes me laugh every time. He's so great. I mean, you know, when he comes on screen, when you have his first, like, speaking shot, He's got such. I mean, the man's a fucking movie yeah. star. It's incredible. We, it was, sat and we watched him at that day. We did. You know, yeah. Just we didn't have much dialogue, and he just sat there and he did his long monologue. We just all kind of watched him and fell into him. Two well, things you see, about you see, you see in the scene that everybody is getting kind of lost in Pierce's yeah. eyes. Two things about him which I loved was uh, a when we first offered him the role, we went to meet him at a hotel that he usually stays in when he's in London. And he read the scene for us. He kind of just did it. We didn't oh, yeah, ask him yeah. to. He just just did it for us. And we were kind of... And I think one of the things that was really sweet that he wanted just to make sure he was in on the joke. He invited Edgar and I along just to make sure... You know, he's, no, he's in a comedy. He doesn't usually do comedy. And even if, when he does, he usually plays quite a serious character. And I think What he, is Mrs. Doubtful? Well, yeah, that's Martin what I meant. Tax. I know. <laughs> but when... I think he wanted to just know that he was in on it, which is incredibly yeah, yeah, sweet yeah. for someone as movie star-like as him and as yeah. con- confident and great that he... He had that vulnerability to him, which I, I had a, enormous respect for. And then on set, he was never not there for yeah, offlines. He, he yeah, yeah, always yeah. appeared for offlines. But he just sat with us too. In, you know, he didn't go back to his trailer. He just sat with us and hung out. And and he, he would always. And he was be... afraid of a drive-by fruiting. <laughs> <laughs> what? That's that's from Mr. Like... Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. But he's, no, he's he was great, and and it was weird with the prologue because we thought oh, we're gonna. People are going to see him and know he's got to come back because you know yeah. when you're a, when you're well versed in movie you know the language of movies you think if you see someone early on if you see a picture of an actor you know you know that actor's going to be in the film. But, but tell me something. What 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 is with that in mind of like the fact that he doesn't appear until later? What is what is happening in the first scene with his kind of shot? Can you tell me what's going on? I was about to say grooming. No, but he's like out. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> 
god. Well, listen, no, no, in this like, day and age, Pierce is out of focus in every shot. Uh, like, uh, the focus, like, so I delivery deliberately, like, it was a funny thing to soft. have a main, like, oh, okay. a main, like, sort of, a huge actor and go, like, put Pierce out of focus, put the focus on Thomas all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. On that Brosnan bombshell, guys, thanks so much for coming <laughs> in. Thank, thank you very so, much. Thank you. Thank thanks very much. Thank Peg Frost and Wright there and there was tons of things we didn't even get around to asking him but hopefully we can lure them back into the pod booth for another session at some point and that is it for a World's End spoiler special hope you enjoyed listening to it we won't be back with a spoiler special uh, for another couple of months I'd say probably Thor The Dark World Helen would you say I, roughly that I think might that's be probably it. the next spoilery one yeah Hunger Games I think that's done. after Thor isn't it okay uh, Hobbit yeah maybe. okay so we'll, at some point we'll have another spoiler special but uh, until then it is goodbye from Helen goodbye it is goodbye from Ali bye now it's goodbye from Nick bye and it's goodbye from me that's boo boo <laughs> <laughs>